It took months of wrangling and it nearly didn't happen. But Ukraine will soon get some of the best tanks ever built. At the start of the war in February 2022, Western aid focused on sending either equipment that the Ukrainian military already used and didn't need training for, or items like night vision and body armor that could quickly be assimilated. But that escalated. American howitzers, British missiles, European armored personnel carriers, and Turkish drones soon flowed. The American-made HIMARS rocket artillery systems with a potential range of hundreds of kilometers, are some of the most advanced weapons delivered. And for a long time, there were no tanks. But that has finally changed. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young. And this week, we're looking at how and why the West suddenly agreed to send its best battle tanks to Ukraine and what this means for the war as it approaches its first anniversary. We'll also discuss the developments with Ukrainian ambassador to the UAE, Dimitris Senek, and hear from him about the toll that the fighting is having on his homeland. Before we start, if you want to get all the latest episodes as soon as they come out, then just hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. On January 25th, Germany said it would send over 100 Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine and greenlit other European states sending their stocks. The UK had already said it would be sending 14 Challenger 2 tanks. And in a somewhat unexpected move, the US said it would be sending 31 M1 Abrams tanks. Today I'm announcing that the United States will be sending 31 Abrams tanks to Ukraine. The Abrams tanks are the most capable tanks in the world. <clears throat> They're also extremely complex to operate and maintain. So we're also giving Ukraine the parts and equipment necessary to effectively sustain these tanks on the battlefield. Putin expected Europe and the United States to weaken our resolve. He expected our support for Ukraine to crumble with time. He was wrong. He was wrong. And he was wrong from the beginning and he continues to be wrong. We are united. America's united, and so is the world. Why did it take nearly a year for the West to send tanks, and what does this mean? Well, the first reason for the delay was logistical. Until the outbreak of the war, the Ukrainian military had by and large used ex-Soviet and Russian equipment, as well as some homegrown weapons and other things that had been donated. Ukraine's infantry has largely relied on AK-47s, their airmen fly Soviet MiG jets, and their tank crews use mostly Russian-made T-72s, and now some captured modern Russian T-90s. At first, the West sought to keep supplies to equipment that the Ukrainian army knew how to use already, so soldiers weren't taking time out with training. Bulgaria sold 14 Su-25 fighter jets to NATO to donate to Ukraine, for example. As supplies of these old Russian weapons has dwindled and Ukraine has proven itself able to integrate new equipment, the West has been supplying more and more advanced NATO weapons. Now, Ukraine has long called for state-of-the-art tanks and been told no. The world was hesitant in 2014, when Russia, without hesitation, occupied the Crimea. The world was hesitant in 2022, when Russia, without hesitation, made the war full scale. The world must not hesitate today 
endeavor. The supplying of Ukraine with air defense systems must outpace Russia's next missile attacks. The supplies of Western tanks must outpace another invasion of Russian tanks. The restoration of security and peace in Ukraine must outpace Russia's attacks on security and peace in other countries. On the logistical side, the US, which has provided huge support to Ukraine's military, just didn't think its M1 Abrams was a good fit. The Abrams is probably the most advanced tank in the world, but that also means it's one of the most complicated pieces of machinery to run. The US thought that the time it would take to train Ukraine's tank crews to use them and the mechanics to maintain them, on top of building an entirely new supply chain to keep them in parts and fuel, was simply unfeasible. Instead, Washington was keen to send Germany's Leopard 2, considered among the best tanks in the world. As well as being fast and powerful, the Leopard 2 was designed to be maintained by conscripts with little training, so it's far simpler to service. And, like the British Challenger 2, it runs on diesel. The US Abrams, on the other hand, basically runs on jet fuel. To understand a bit more about these logistical challenges and the calculation that went into what tanks have been given to Ukraine, we sat down with former British tank commander Colonel Hamish de Breton Gordon. Hamish commanded the Challenger 1 tanks in the first Gulf War and later trained on the Challenger 2 tanks. Fuel is the big issue. The Abrams are really thirsty. I mean, yeah, a Challenger will, with 1,500 litres will do about three or 400 miles, which is you know, a significant amount. But an Abrams is twice as thirsty. So you know, keeping them fueled up can be a challenge. The only issue I see is ammunition, because the Challenger 2's main armament is a rifled ammunition, and it's not NATO standard. What I would say to that is that each tank squadron has its own integral logistic support. So I don't see that that's a problem because um, it's a fairly small, you know, even if a tank fires 50 rounds a day, which would be incredible, you know, you're only topping them up once a day type of thing. And I don't see that being a problem. And I don't see fuel being a problem. I mean, you know, in somewhere like Ukraine, you can literally pull into the local gas station and fill up, which, which you can't do in the desert, for instance. And that brings us to the political side of things. So Germany said no, it wouldn't be sending its Leopard 2s unless allies also got involved. The concern in Berlin was that if they were the main provider of tanks, it could make them more involved in the war than other allies, and it could also become a target for reprisals. Berlin wanted NATO allies to be in this together, but more specifically, Berlin wanted the US to be in it with them and the US was still reluctant to send the Abrams. All the while, Poland was threatening to send some of its leopard stocks, regardless of Germany's refusal. To try and break the logjam, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced the donation of the Challenger 2 tanks. But that wasn't enough. Germany wanted the US to send the M1 Abram. And finally, President Joe Biden agreed. When asked by a reporter, he denied that Germany had forced him. He said, no, but I want to make sure we're in this all together. So careful negotiation between Berlin and Washington led to that January 25th announcement. Russia criticised the move, 
The embassy in Germany said that Berlin's decision meant that it was abandoning its historical responsibility to Russia arising from Nazi crimes in World War II. In a statement, the embassy said that the decision would escalate the conflict to a new level. It also said it destroys the remnants of mutual trust, causes irreparable damage to the already deplorable state of Russian-German relations, and casts doubt on the possibility of their normalisation in the foreseeable future. At the start of the war, Ukraine particularly was sharing dozens of videos of Russian tanks being knocked out. Indeed, Russia is thought to have lost at least half of the 2,600 operational tanks it had before the war. It's led many to question if the age of the tank is over, if the effectiveness of the shoulder and portable anti-tank missiles means that these old beer moths are no longer needed. But Hamish doesn't agree. He points out that tanks bring a huge amount of firepower and manoeuvrability, especially when they're paired with an armoured personnel carrier or something like the US Bradley fighting vehicles that Washington is also sending. With top speeds of over 70 kilometers an hour, these two vehicles can cover huge areas, get behind enemy positions, and break defensive lines. Here's Hamish. If tanks operate in isolation, as we've seen with the Russians in Ukraine, they get taken out, they get absolutely hammered. I think Ukraine, you know, particularly the Crimea areas there, absolutely uh, suited for rapid tank movement, armored. Uh, combined arms manoeuvre. And the key thing with armoured fighting vehicles is, number one, they want, need to be able to k- keep up with the tanks. Uh, and, and number two, they need to be able to you know, put out the infantry in the right place. This, Hamish says, is key to how the war looks right now. For weeks in December and January, Ukraine and Russia have been in a war of attrition around the town of Solidar in the east. This can favour Russia with its huge arsenal of artillery and massive number of soldiers. Meanwhile, Russian forces all along the line appear to be digging in to try and prevent a Ukrainian breakthrough, as seen in September 2022 when they retook nearly 6,000 kilometres of land in a matter of weeks. And this is where tanks can really help, says Hamish. I think the tanks are so important now because we're in this sort of stalemate, as it were. The Russians are dug in, First World War fashion. Uh, Their tanks are dug in, their tanks are pillboxes. And and that's the great, if you get behind an enemy, that's where they are weakest. And that's where armoured manoeuvre comes in. And I think that's why it's so important. I think the the other great quality of a tank, the shock action and the dislocation, um, that's why I think they're going to be hugely effective because they will be able to unbalance the Russians. And once that happens, I think this will turn into a rout. And this brings us to a bit of the history of the tanks headed for Ukraine. The Leopard, the Abrams and the Challengers are all updated versions of tanks designed in the 70s and the 80s. And their designers were faced with a huge problem. By the 1980s, Russia had at least three times as many tanks in Europe as NATO. Instead of building ever more, the West went down the route of building better. One US report described the requirement of having a tank able to rapidly engage successive targets. They wanted a tank that was faster and more agile than the Russians, but still packed a big punch and could take hits if they were going to win a numbers game. The Western tanks, and particularly British tanks, are designed 
to be very well protected. You know, we're always far more concerned about our tank crew than the Russians are. So you might look at, you know, Challenger 2 is much bigger than, say, a T-72, but a T-72 has very little protection on it, which is why we're seeing them brew up so easily and uh, taking no punishment. One would expect a Challenger 2 to be able to take two or three direct hits from a T-72 or a T-80 and still carry on. And uh, and the armour, which is highly classified, it is designed to do that. And Hamish has seen this in action. In the First and the Second Gulf Wars combined, British Challenger tanks destroyed more than 300 Soviet-made Iraqi tanks and suffered no combat losses. The American Abrams performed similarly. With the deal for tanks in the works, there's been a lot of talk about the maintenance. But Hamish has downplayed this a bit. First off, he says, a lot of the track record of these tanks has been in the hot, dusty Middle East. And with some adaptation, they worked all right here. But he points out the tanks were built to fight Russia in Europe. In the mud and the snow of Ukraine, he says, they should perform fine. Challenger 2 and Leopard 2 were designed exactly for this, the Russians. They weren't designed to fight in the desert, to fight the Iraqis, whatever. They were designed to defeat T-90, T-80 and T-72. And, uh, and I think, you know, we as a, as a tanky, I'm pretty confident that we overmatch. Um, you know, one of the things I always say to people, the last time I commanded a Challenger 2, I went two and a half thousand miles before I needed any maintenance on my tank. You know, that is hugely important. So finally, on the logistics side is training. Whole divisions of enlisted Ukrainians have flown to the UK, bases across Europe and even the US to be trained to fight. And specialists have travelled to learn how to use the donated equipment that's coming from NATO countries. The same will be true for the mechanics and the tank crews on the new Leopards, Challengers and Abrams. But Hamish says this might not take that long. Tank crews who, who will already have been trained on T-72. Driving a T-72, driving a Challenger 2 is very little difference. The firing the gun, you know, when I did my Challenger 1 to Challenger 2 conversion course, it took me, you know, half a morning sort of thing. Admittedly, training people from scratch, I agree, would take a while. But converting Ukrainians to, from T-72 to Challenger 2, I don't think it's a big issue at all. And of course, we have massive tank training areas in Poland just over the border. And he points out that the technology has designed to be intuitive. He says these days, it's not that dissimilar to playing a computer game. You would be surprised what a, what a Challenger 2 is like. You know, it, it is pretty technical, but actually, when for, for old fellows like me going from Chieftain or from Challenger 1 to Challenger 2, it took a bit of time because it's all all sort of PlayStation technology, you know, for the young kids, the 18-year-olds, you know, it took them no time at all. So they've got a joystick and oh, they're pressing buttons, you know, different buttons, left hand, right hand, uh, and it's entirely intuitive and easy for them. I can only text with one finger. Um, but actually, you know, if you can text with two fingers, you can fire a tank with no problem at all. To talk more about the political side of the conflict, we sat down with Ukraine's ambassador to the UAE, Dmitro Senek, and asked why they need these weapons now. Let me start by reminding of uh, one very important fact which is sometimes overlooked. Uh, Ukraine possessed the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world, which we voluntarily gave up in 1994 and transferred it to Russia in exchange for security guarantees 
inviolability of our borders and respect for our sovereignty. Moscow breached these security guarantees. Unlike Russia, Ukraine was not prepared for a war of such a scale. Russia throws all its military potential, including manpower, artillery, tanks, missiles and drones to destroy Ukraine. So we do need to equip our army because we care about soldiers, about every life. Ukraine has to reach a military parity to discourage Russia from continuing its military aggression. For that reason, we need tanks, armored vehicles, ammunition and aircraft. Ambassador Senek also thinks the tanks will change the game in Ukraine and help them end the war sooner. I believe that uh, appropriate quantity of tanks can turn the tides in uh, some directions and uh, will be very effective to liberate the territory of Ukraine. Ukrainians prove to be a brave nation ready to find their independence. The more timely weapons we receive, the sooner the war will stop. Moscow is running short of ammunition and uh, trained troops, uh, despite efforts to replenish stocks and mobilize additional forces. So it is a high time to equip Ukrainians to let us protect our land. But all of this assistance comes at a huge cost. Between January and November 2022, 46 countries sent an estimated $108 billion in financial, humanitarian and military aid to Ukraine. Ambassador Senek says that Ukraine is interested in a political end to the war, but he says that Moscow hasn't shown any desire to engage with President Vladimir Zelensky's 10-point peace plan, and that makes diplomacy difficult. We do not see the sincere desire from the Russian authorities to sit and discuss the peace agreement. Because so far what we hear is that we have to accept the Russian advances and temporary occupied territories. This is not what we are looking for, and this is not what the people of Ukraine want. And so what does the next year hold for Ukraine? Well, Ambassador Senek is hopeful that he'll see a political and military victory for Ukraine, but also accountability. So for us, 2023 should be the year when Ukraine wins, and I believe Russia has already lost. The Russian ambassador to the UAE wasn't available to join us, but his office pointed us to statements made by the foreign ministry. Thanks this week to Colonel Hamish de Breton-Gordon and Ambassador Dimitro Senek. We were produced this week by Arthur Edison, Dua Farid and Tom Smith, with assistance from Robert Tollest. This was Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young. And if you want all the episodes as soon as they come out, then just hit subscribe in your podcast app. And if you can leave us a review while you're there, it makes all the difference.